Next week, we will be picking up our long-lost study of the Gospel of Luke, and we haven't been in all summer, but we've got one more week before we pick up in Luke again, and, uh, and today we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. And uh, the goal, the heartbeat of today is that we would set the table by studying Acts of just the focus that we're going to have for this month. Remember, we talk about the engage focus for this ministry year, and each month we're going to have a different focus, and our focus starting in September is focusing on engaging our community distinctively as Christians, and, uh, and what I wanted to do is set the table for that today by looking at Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. Let me go ahead and read that to you. Follow along as I read, and then we will begin engaging in this, in this passage. Let's look here. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Let's pray here together. Father, I thank you now for the privilege we've had to have celebrated the table, to be reminded of your kingdom that has come in Christ and his death and resurrection that brought us life, that spared us from your wrath. I thank you that we can celebrate that you are the God of salvation, that behold, you have come and that you're coming again. I pray now, God, that we would unite together as your people under your word and that this time would conform us not only in our thoughts, but in the way we live our life. Lord, may what we learn here today translate to changed hearts and change minds and change lives in all we do. Thank you for the privilege of being here. May it truly be worshipful to you. In Christ's name, amen. It's a great monumental work. Some of you maybe have seen it. Some of you may have read it called The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. Familiar with the title? Edward Gibbon is the author. Two-volume, big work. Uh, Gibbon was really no friend of Christians. He doesn't, you know, if you've ever read the work, he doesn't really particularly like Christians. And, uh, and he places the blame, a large portion of the blame on the decline and fall of the Roman Empire, squarely at, on Christians and the, and the church and the, and the, and the uh, inauguration of the church. And in his work, he describes what happens, and, and, he, and he describes in one particular chapter about the growth of the church. And he makes an interesting observation. I'm just going to paraphrase it. Um, he basically says that within 20 years of, from the, when the church started, actually less than 20 years, about 17 to 19 years after Christ had ascended, he doesn't say ascended, but that's our reference point here, uh, that, that the church had expanded to such a level that it actually had reached India and China. So in roughly 17 to 19 years, what started with about 170 people in Jerusalem in, in, in less than 20 years made its way throughout Israel, made its way all throughout portions of the Roman Empire, all the way into India and into China. And the most amazing thing about that advancement 
was the fact that that entire thing happened without an army, without any real strong political support, without a lot of money, without a a well-oiled kind of institutional machine. 170 people in less than 20 years was able to take the gospel and plant churches all the way throughout, all the way from, from Jerusalem to India and China. It's an amazing thing. Now, he says that that spread is what brought down the Roman Empire. But, but, but what's interesting is not his thesis of, about the Roman Empire. What's amazing is that he makes this observation. And, I, and, and every time I read that, I just think that it is actually an outstanding observation. That, that what can start with less people than what's in this room right now can impact the world in less than 20 years. Amazing thought. Many missiologists have studied this, and they all kind of come to the same conclusion, that the success of the church and the advancement of the church and the mission of the church did not depend on political influence, did not depend on the army, did not depend upon the skill or the personality of the people. The success of the advancement of the church came from one simple thing, that every believer understood that that their faith in Christ made them a missionary of the person of Christ. That their faith in Christ wasn't just about me and God and just my walk and my journey, but that God is going to use me to make his name known however he's gifted me and whatever personality he's given me, whatever gifts and talents, and that what I've been given, I have to give away. I have to give it away. And when every believer gets a hold of that, it starts a movement, a movement that impacts the world. And I was thinking, could you imagine if, if us in this room said, what's our 19-year strategy? If all of us said, okay, I think most of us have 20 years left in us, right? I don't want to look around and <laughs> point out, some of you don't. No. But <laughs> let's just assume we all got 15 years left in us, okay? In the course of that, if we said, what would happen? If I said that God not only saved me so that I could worship him, but he saved me so that I could make his name known everywhere all the time in the personality that he's given me. And if we all said, that's going to be my life's purpose. What could happen in 15 to 19 years with this group? It's an interesting thought. Well, that's the challenge for today. In fact, that's actually what we're going to see here in the book of Acts, because you see, what needs to happen in order for that kind of outlet, that kind of mindset to take root in our lives, we have to have a a, a little transformation. Most of us, we have a very narrow view of the kingdom of God, we have a very narrow view of the gospel, and a very narrow view of Jesus and the mission. Our view is, is actually much more narrow than we realize. And what needs to happen is that we need to have that view of Jesus and his work and his kingdom expanded. And Acts chapter... Uh, 1 verses 6 through 8 is all about that expansion of the view of the of the mission the disciples have one view jesus comes with another their view is very narrow his view is very expansive we're going to see this today and we're going to see something very interesting we're going to see jesus move them from a narrow view of the mission to an expansive view of the mission And in seeing this today, we are going to catch something that is really essential. That you lack nothing 
to be a full-on missionary right now for the kingdom of God, where you're planted. You lack nothing. You possess it all if you are in Christ. So you might say, well, i got to get this in order then, or i got to get this right, or i got to get this fixed in my family, or i got to get this fixed here. No, 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 no. Because the kingdom didn't expand in less than 20 years with a bunch of people whose lives were in order. It didn't expand with a bunch of people whose, li- whose marriages were perfect or whose kids just never sinned or their flowers never grew without weeds and needing water. You know, it didn't expand that way. It expanded through people who said, what I've been given, I have to give away. That's it. What I've been given, I have to give away. And I want you to see that, and I want you to see why that's the case. It's right there in the text, as we'll see here. So let's look at this. Let's look at this narrow view of the mission. Let's begin. Look at verse 6. It says, So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, why are they asking this question? They've gathered, and they're, they're asking this question, is this the moment when Israel, the kingdom, gets restored? Why are they asking this? Well, just... Just jump up a couple verses and see what's going on here. Look at verses 4 and 5. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So he says, you guys hang in Jerusalem. And remember that whole promise I was talking about? John talked about all these things, the the Spirit, the Spirit's going to come. So this promise of the Holy Spirit's going to descend upon you while you're in Jerusalem. So the first thing that went to their mind, when they hear this, right, the Spirit is coming, their first thought was, this is the moment. Israel's getting restored. Now why would they think that way? Well, they would think that way for a couple reasons, I mean, I think they would think that way. Firstly, just theologically, they, they understood that there's lots of promises made to Israel. There's lots of things in the Old Testament, and they're thinking this is that moment. But there's also something else involved with this, I think. You kind of drill down, you look at the disciples and, and everything that we've been studying in Luke and what we'll pick up continuing to study, is that sometimes in our mindset, we think about the movement of the kingdom of God in purely earthly terms. We might think that, you know, if, if we might look at, at, the, at the church and the world and the kingdom of God and we might say this, boy, look at what's going on in our country today. We've got marriage being redefined. We've got abortion that's legalized. We've got immorality everywhere. We've got all kinds of just bad things going on. God is losing. And the world is winning. Now, what is behind that kind of thought? That thought is that if God was winning, then certainly our nation would be better. What kind of thought is that? That God is just bound, and the advancement of his kingdom is bound in a political sphere. That's a narrow view of the kingdom of God. Now, we're not saying the kingdom of God doesn't impact kingdoms. Of course, historically it does. When the kingdom of God is at work, it's amazing what goes on in the world. It's amazing how whole cultures can change. But the bottom line is this, that it's easy in our brain to just leave things there. So the promise of the Spirit is coming. This must be the moment when Israel's restored. 
This has got to be the moment. What What other moment could it be? And in fact, if the kingdom was restored, consider what could happen. Consider what could happen if Israel could, could, could eventually be removed under the thumb of the Roman Empire and have a good king. Consider all the good that could come to the world if Israel was restored and, and a good godly king was on the throne. The nations would be blessed. Lots of great things would happen. And we all know that Psalm 2, the Messiah is the king of kings. He's the one who's going to rule the nations, so this must be the moment. But what I want you to catch here is notice a couple things in the response of the disciples there in verse 6. He says, they say, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? So when they think of the coming of the Spirit, they're thinking of it in a political sphere. But notice, they're thinking of it in a past tense political sphere. What does the word restore mean? It means to bring it back. So what are they thinking of? I'm sure they're thinking of the Davidic kingdom, right? That would probably be a good, safe guess. Time when David, the great king, I mean, everybody knew Jerusalem was the city of David, and he's the man. Doesn't get any better than David. And there he is. Is this the moment when we get that kingdom back? And then notice something else about their statement. Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? So that's actually a very restrictive statement. The Spirit of God is coming. The kingdom of God is coming is what Jesus is teaching them. Kingdom's coming. Spirit's coming. And they are thinking, wow, David, our nation, our group. It's very easy for us as human beings to kind of restrict the work of God, just in only thinking of it in our terms. We can do that in our own country. And, you, know, every, you know, all of Bible prophecy is centered on what happens in America. Right? It's easy just to get focused in on just us. That's where they're at, this, this restricted kingdom. And so when Jesus speaks of this, their mind goes narrow. Our minds can go narrow as well, I highly doubt that, that when you think of the Spirit of God coming or, or the kingdom of God coming, you would think about, like, is this the time when America becomes this great whatever, or however, you might not think politically like they did. But you could think using that same framework and think, well, if God's going to use me, I have to be, have better skills or stronger influence or more connected or much more outgoing personality or better looking or taller or shorter or whatever however you would think about it. And you might think this is how God works. We need power. We need money, right? If God's going to bless Kishwaukee Bible Church, we certainly need 20,000 people and 55 pastors. That's the only way we could really impact the world. It's just easy to go narrow, and that is very narrow. That's what they have done. So here's what Jesus has to do. He's got to blow that apart. So there's their narrow view of the kingdom. Now let's look at this expansive view of the mission, right? Kingdom, spirits coming. Is it, are we going back to the Davidic reign? Is this that moment? Jesus is going to now say, hold on, I'm going I'm to blow this away here. I'm going to give you an expansive view of the mission. Look at verse 7. And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. 
So they want to know what's going to happen to the nation of Israel. What, is this this moment when things... And Jesus says, basically, I'll give you the less than paraphrase. It's not for you to know how and when God's going to do what he's going to do with Israel. That's, all what, that's what that means when you see times and seasons. It's just how and when. How is this going to happen? When is it going to happen? This is up to God. God's doing what he's going to do with the nations. I don't want you to think about that. That is not to be your thought. Do not put the kingdom of God and interpret the kingdom of God in this kind of earthly political sphere. God's at work in this world. Things are going to happen. Don't think about it. It's not for you to know right now. It's not it. It's not your focal point. So here's the first thing that Jesus is doing. He's getting them to interpret the spirit of God and the kingdom of God through a different lens. When you think about God's spirit coming and God's kingdom coming, take your eyes off of your narrow view, and I'm going to put it now on a wider view. Do not think in institutional terms. Do not think in political terms. Notice how you should think about it. Look at verse 8. What is, what's the first word of verse 8? But, thank you. Okay, the first word, it's a conjunction in the negative, right? Do not go down this road when I talk about kingdom and spirit, but no, I don't want you to go there. God's got a plan. He's working the nations. The how and the when is up to him. He's fixed these things. He's got it under control, but here is what you need to do. You need to realize something. Notice what he says, but you... There's the key word. If you're a Bible underliner, I'd underline the but and the you. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So this contrast is important to catch. Spirit, kingdom, their thought, nation. Jesus says, spirit, kingdom, my thought, you. God's doing something in you. Something's going to go on in your heart. Something's going to go on in your life. Let God take care of the timetable of the kingdoms. And let you realize that the power is not going to reside in an army. The power is not going to reside in a king, in the sense of, you know, God's going to raise up another king like David, in an earthly sense. The power is going to reside in you, because the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you. The reason why the church expanded from Jerusalem to India and China in less than 20 years is because the very Spirit of God rested upon people. And when that spirit rests upon people, they are able to do things that they couldn't normally do. They'll be able to fly and jump over buildings. No, I'm kidding. It just sounds like the natural thing to say, right? No. They're able to do something even much more profound than that. Much more profound. What's the power of the spirit? Why is he saying this? Why is he saying you're going to get it? Just think about this for a minute. When the Spirit of God comes upon somebody, the Spirit of God comes upon somebody to provide 
the divine ability to do what is humanly impossible to do. That's what the Spirit of God can do. He can come upon someone and to do something that they could not naturally do on their own. And so Jesus is telling them, I believe, he's saying, listen, don't look for the power of the next Israeli army, boys. Don't go there. The power is coming to you. And it's going to reside within you. Now, what does this power do? What is the point of this power? Well, Jesus has told them already what this power will do. He's explained what the Spirit is going to do here. And, and one of the things that's interesting is if you were to read through the book of Acts and you would see all of the references to the Holy Spirit, there's many references to the Holy Spirit. One thing that is true on every time the Spirit of God comes upon somebody, they begin to bear testimony of the person and the glory of Jesus Christ. They suddenly get this ability to proclaim Christ. And Jesus said that's precisely what's going to happen when the Spirit comes. He's encouraging the guys before his death in John 16. They're pretty discouraged. It's a pretty depressing night. And, uh, and listen to what Jesus says in John 16, 5 through 15. He says, but now I'm going to him who sent me. And none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Now he's going to explain this. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer, concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. I still have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So you think, you guys are down, but know this, I'm going to go, and when I go, the Spirit's going to come. And when the Spirit comes, He's going to do this incredible work. He's going to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Concerning sin, because they just do not believe in Jesus. The world has rejected Jesus, they've rejected who He is, and as a result, they're walking in sin, they're walking in deadness, and guess what? When the Spirit of God comes upon someone, suddenly their eyes begin to get open to that. And they get open to the fact that they've realized that Jesus isn't just a man or a good man. He's the one who died and ascended to heaven. He's at the right hand of the Father. He's the one who possesses all glory and authority. And suddenly they begin to see that. And suddenly they begin to see that the cross satisfied everything because he killed the serpent. He, he, he executed judgment. He died. Suddenly they, they see the cross. And when the Holy Spirit comes upon the, the people of God, they begin to start understanding the person and work of Jesus, and they can begin to explain it to people. So the Spirit is at work in the child of God, showing them the glory of Jesus and helping them teach it. And the Spirit's at work in the person who doesn't know God, opening their eyes to these truths. And he said, this incredible thing's going to happen when the Spirit comes. 
And you're going to begin to remember these truths that I've said. And you're going to begin to declare my name. And you're going to make me known. And guess what? My spirit's going to be out there in the world zapping people in their hearts and their minds, opening their eyes to who I am. You're going to be preaching Jesus. The spirit's going to be showing them Jesus. And miracles are going to start happening in people's lives. So, Jesus says, you're going to receive power when the Spirit comes upon you. This is an incredible thing. So the power that exists, that you already have, is the power to be able to proclaim a message that no one would ever believe. Isn't that incredible? We have this message that's just really crazy in an earthly sense. And yet we can proclaim it and people will believe it. Why? Because we have the power to explain it and they will have the power to believe it. And that's what you're getting. And this is why 170 people can begin a process that would advance to the known world in less than 20 years. That's what happens. So notice what he says. Notice, let's keep going, looking at in verse 8 there. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. Now, what's interesting is that, of course, Jesus was probably speaking Aramaic, but when they were writing it, they were writing it in Greek and the word that they used to be witnesses is, is the word martyr. Now, when you hear the word martyr, you think of someone who dies or someone who's really drama-filled and really likes to make their points in annoying ways, right? It's either a pejorative term or someone who really dies. But yet the word doesn't mean death. The literal definition of martyr is just someone who bears witness. All it means. So, if someone walked by and stole your wallet or stole your purse and ran away and that person was caught down the road and you and, and, and I'm walking by and you were to say to me, Steve, would you be a martyr for this? In, in, our, in our contemporary definition, I'd be like, I'm not going to die for your purse. Okay. <laughs> but in that day, literally all I'd be saying, would you be a witness? Now, why did the word martyr get transferred and suddenly change its definition from someone who just bears witness, like, yes, I saw this person stole your purse, to this person died. What happened to make it change, the definition change? You know what happened. These 170 that were converted to 2,000 or so, 3,000 within the first few days of the church, which then turned into 10,000 within the first few weeks and months of the church, were suddenly going around the world and they were proclaiming the name of Jesus and governments were coming against them, institutions were coming against them, religious people were coming against them and saying, we're going to kill you unless you stop bearing witness to this person of Jesus. And they say, go ahead and kill me. I'm never going to stop. And suddenly, these believers that were going all over the place bore testimony to the point of death and because so many of them were killed, suddenly the word martyr became synonymous with death because it had such an impact. That's the power of the Spirit of God, that you can give testimony to Jesus and never stop. You're that committed to it. It was so powerful, the power of the Spirit, 
that it actually changed the definition of a word. Isn't that incredible? That's the power of the Spirit of God. Such a dramatic testimony. And so he says, you will be my witnesses, which means what? We need to tell people about Christ. And notice the sphere of this. It's pretty simple. He says, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now what I want you to notice are the way all of those things are connected. Notice that they're connected with the word and and not the word then. If he were to say it with then, it would say, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, then in all Judea, and then Samaria, and then to the end of the earth. But he doesn't say that. He says and, which means everywhere, all the time. It's a giant rainstorm, this testimony of Christ. So there used to be this, this saying, and sometimes people in the church used to get like, kind of beaten down when this would happen. Somebody would get a stirring. Maybe they're just sitting in church and they're kind of, they go through their church life as like a non-event person, just kind of sitting there, coming in, coming out. And then one day it hits them. I got to proclaim Christ and I want to go to Nepal. Let's do it. So they come to a leadership and say, Lord is really putting Nepal in my heart. I got a burden. I want to go. And a lot of times the leadership team says, well, you got to do it here first. Now, I think that's wrong. I understand the idea of letting somebody prove their faithfulness, making sure we're not sending out wacky people, right? You want to you discern the person. But God is going to burden some of you for India. God's going to burden some of you for Pakistan. God's going to burden some of you for Nepal. Some are going to be burdened for our street right outside here. Some of you are going to be burdened for our nation. Some of you are going to be burdened for a particular people group. Some of you are going to say, I see exiles coming in here, people from other countries that are over here at NIU, and they're, they're studying, and I have a burden for that. And what's supposed to be happening is that Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the world should be going on right here in our midst. And so if you say, Steve, man, my heart is bleeding for India, I say, great, let's pray together and do everything we can to see what, what, what God might be doing in your life to get you there. And if you say, I'm burdened for the people right down the street, great, let's pray about that. Because it's everywhere. And that's why what you're going to see from time to time, even come from this pulpit, is sometimes we're highlighting things going on in the world. Sometimes we're going to highlight things going on in our community. Why? It's Jerusalem, right where they are. Judea, Samaria, actually there's no and there in the Greek. It's actually just one place. He's basically saying here, the surrounding reason, he includes Samaria because those are the half-breeds. Those are the kind of the cross-cultural stuff in your midst. You can say it that way. And, of course, the world. What he's saying is, listen, everywhere, all the time, with whatever's on your heart, bear testimony of the person of Jesus. And the power of the Spirit of God is upon you to do that. To do that. So, here's how I would summarize what's going on here. Jesus says the kingdom's coming, the Spirit's coming, and guys, don't worry about this in a political sphere. Don't worry about the hows and the whys of what God's doing in the world of politics. He is at work there. Don't worry about that. Instead, don't reside the power in an institution somewhere. The power is coming in you. You will receive power. You will be able to bear testimony of me. And I want you to do this wherever you are, whatever's on your heart, wherever you go. What you have been given, give away. 
See what he does? Narrow view, Israel. Wide view, world. Narrow view, political power. Wide view, spirit power. That's the kind of teaching that changes the world. So let's wrap this up. What I want to do here is look at the lesson of this and then give you the challenge I have for the month. I told you every month I'm going to put a challenge out. So I'm going to start your challenge. But first let's get the lesson. Here's the lesson. Very simple. The power to be a witness of Jesus does not reside in politics, personality, or earthly power. It resides in the gift of the Holy Spirit. That means that if you are in Christ, you have all you need to be a witness. If your marriage is in a really funky place, continue to work on it in love and forgiveness, but be a witness. If your kids are annoying the socks off of you, shepherd them, love them, raise them in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, and be a witness. If your finances are kind of out of whack, be a faithful steward, be a wise steward, don't go into debt, but be a witness. Whatever it is you have put in front to say, this has to be done, that's too narrow. Be faithful with what you have, but realize you have the Spirit of God and you can proclaim Christ and make him known, even if it's just to one person, you can do it. Because the power resides in the Spirit, in the Spirit, when it's given to you. You might think you have no place in the kingdom because you might say, I have a really bad past. My past is just too rocky. God can't use me. You might say, I really have a, a pretty lame personality. I could never be used. You might say, I, I don't have any skills or abilities. And I would say, well, the power doesn't reside in you. If it resided in you, yeah. If you're lame, then you're probably not going to impact the world. But the very spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is, in live in, is alive in you, there's where the power resides. You have what it takes. There's the lesson. Now, here's the challenge. Here's our September challenge. The challenge for our church is this. I want you to take the month of September to plan a food drive that you're going to execute in November, giving you time to do it, for your neighborhood. So in November, I want you to host a food drive in your neighborhood. September, you're going to plan it. And I'm going to make this so simple. I'm just going to give you one thing to do each week. I'm going to treat you like you're five, just so that you can get it. It's to be simple. But why do this? Why plan a food drive? You might say, Steve, that just seems like a social gospel thing. Are you... You, you know, you're not preaching the gospel or whatever. No, that's not where we're going with this. I'm not saying that the food drive is preaching the gospel. What I'm saying is it's really hard to be a witness to Christ from people you don't know. Right? If I come home, drive into my driveway, open up my garage door, put the van in, close the garage door, I walk into my kitchen, I can grab an iced tea and have a great conversation with my family. And that would be a fairly typical summer day. Only waving at the neighbors when I'm driving down the street. How do I meet them? How do I bear testimony that Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead and they can be set free from the power of sin? I'm not asking them to join a cult. I'm asking them to be set free. 
the power of sin. How do I meet them? Well, one thing I can do is have a meaningful interaction with them. So I can go around my neighborhood and I can pass out a flyer saying, I'm collecting food in November. Here's the food I need. I want you to come at my house on this evening and drop it off between 4 and 7. And if you want, you're welcome to come in for hot chocolate. Just that simple. Now, there's a couple things that are going through some of your minds, potentially. Some of you are saying, Steve, I live in the absolute middle of nowhere. Right? Some of you do. Some of you, your closest neighbors a billion miles away through cornfields. So there's two things you can do. Number one is find that one person one mile away and tell them, should we collect some food? You know, you might have a longer drive. Second thing you can do is come join me in my neighborhood. I got lots of houses in my neighborhood, so you can come help me. Some of you have three or four of you that all live in the same neighborhood, so then I would ask you to pile up after church and talk. Maybe just have one house, be the house, and work together. But to make this simple, there's only three things that I'm going to ask you to do this week. Three things. This is really simple. The first thing I would like you to do is uh, to call either the Salvation Army or any other food pantries in town and ask them what do they need. Just don't start collecting stuff. They actually have very specific things that they need. You know, 12-year-old can of beans is not helpful to them. Okay, so, 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 so find out what they need. Second thing I'm going to ask you to do is unite. And what I mean by unite is that if some of you uh, are in neighborhoods with other people, unite. Or if you really do live out in the middle of nowhere, join somebody else in their neighborhood and, and be a part of that. Unite. Third thing I'm going to ask you to do is pray. Pray that in this kind of meaningful engagement, that God would use you to bear testimony of Jesus and that his spirit would begin to convict the people you're, con- you're, you're, you're going to have connections with of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And I guarantee you one thing. You start praying that prayer, I highly doubt God says, no, I don't want to answer that prayer. I'm not interested in convicting the world of sin, righteousness, and justice. I'm not interested in having you be a witness in your community. I'm not interested in saving anybody on your block. I doubt that's the mindset of God. So I think we're joining in to the momentum of what God's doing. So there's the challenge. So this week, simple. Call, find out what you need. Second, unite if you need to unite with somebody. And third, pray. That's it. Once you get that list, just hold on to it, and next week I'll tell you what to do with it. Make sense? And so we should be praying for this. The challenge, and I'm sorry for making it, I'm not trying to insult your intelligence, I want to help you do this and take the risk away, because this isn't as risky as it sounds. But I'll tell you what, the point of the Spirit of God coming upon us is that we would be a witness to the person of Jesus. The Spirit has come upon us. He's given us everything we need to do it. So let's just do it. Let's walk in that power. So why don't I pray for us as we embark on this journey together. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the Spirit that comes, that resides in us Thank you that that spirit is, uh, makes us alive and causes us to see Christ. But not only that, empowers us to bear testimony of who Jesus is. So Lord, as we begin to embark to think about our community, Lord, I pray for two things. I pray, number one, that you would make us not look to ourselves. That we would think that we have to have some kind of special ability to do something. That we wouldn't be insecure And instead, we would find our security in the Spirit of God who can bring us to an understanding and illuminate for us the person of Christ. 
And not only that, that same spirit that can be at work in our community now, convicting the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And Lord, I pray that your spirit would be at work now among our neighborhood. Lord, we, we want to see people set free. We want to see people who are engulfed in pain and misery and the impact of sin be delivered from it. We want to see those that are engaged in, in, in home lives that are destroying them or, 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 or looking to alcohol to provide comfort or drugs or for kids and young people that are looking to immorality and pleasure to be a form of excitement in life. And Lord, I pray that you would use us to show people that they could be set free, that they could be made alive, that they could know the joy of marriage, that they could know the joy of, of being in you, they could know the joy of walking in your righteousness and truth. Lord, unite us as families. Lord, allow us, to, those of us who have children, to use those children in this process to, to, to instill within them a love for, for your work and allow them to witness the power of your spirit. And Lord, I pray, God, that we would make the name of Christ known. Lord, I pray that 17 years from now we can be giving glory to you as we see the name of Christ made known in our Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and world. May we be faithful with this vapor that you've given us of life. In the name of Jesus, amen.